Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Well, welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I'm just immensely honored to have as my conversation partner today, Pastor Kevin Butcher. Kevin has been a mentor and a friend and a faith leader in my life over the course of the last couple of decades. And I'm super honored to have him as my guest today. Kevin is a veteran pastor. He is a leader of a ministry that serves pastors called Rooted Ministries. He's the author of two books, Choose and Choose Again, Free, which is an amazing book about being rescued from shame. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. So much of an honor to be with you, man. Kevin, you've been pretty candid with me at some unique junctures in both of our respective journeys about how you have discovered faith and how you have rediscovered faith. In a nutshell, give us the give us the story, the, the arc about how your view of God uh, has evolved and transformed in some pretty radical ways over the over the arc of your story. You bet. Uh, my friend. So I came to Christ when I was five, and um, I, I was already mired in a shame-based family system, it, Christian, but totally jacked up and dysfunctional. That, that's what my mom and dad were raised in, and so that's what they had to give to me, albeit they did give me Jesus, for which I'll be forever grateful. And I responded to Christ. I was sitting in, the, in a church with a couple of hundred other people, five years old, and when the rest of the kids that were in that service were tearing the pages out of hymn books. For whatever reason, I was listening to the guy up front. Mm. And you know what? I didn't know anything about doctrine, Steve, as you might imagine for a five-year-old. I didn't know anything about, about theology, but I felt love from this man. I remember thinking, this guy feels safe to me. So whatever he's selling, I want it. And it was about Jesus, you know? And, and I said, yes. And um, my dad was, you know, it was, it was a fundamentalist kind of a situation. So they had invitations where you raise your hands and whatnot. My dad peeked, saw me, went home with me. And that night took me home and had me kneel and pray the prayer, you know, the prayer. And I tell you, my friend, I was already in the kingdom of God because when my heart felt the love of Jesus, I said yes immediately. For the next 30 some years, I didn't feel so much more of that love from Christianity, I got a whole lot of law, a whole bunch of rules. And honestly, I became a performer. Part of that out of my dysfunctional family, uh, where it was, you got love, but if you performed, and I kind of plastered that on the face of God. So I thought, if I perform for God, he'll love me. So I was the all-star everything in youth group, uh, Christian university, um, played football, used to share our faith, you know, per performance. I think some people received the faith when we shared our faith, but it's still, in my heart, it was another performance. Went to seminary for four years. And when I got out, I had six years of Greek, two years of Hebrew, three years of Latin. I had a head full of Bible, but I was a performer for Christ. And I, I was getting worn out and didn't even know it. There were some signs of my emptiness. I think you know, I've confessed in, in front of one of your churches, I think, that one of my early uh, signs was that I one time lost my cool with my wife when we'd been married for just a, a few months and put my hands on her, which is, I, I'm embarrassed to say that if there are any sisters in our listening audience, I repent again and apologize again. It was the only time I ever touched my wife, but but it was so wrong and so heinous, and it came out of my own baggage. We were having a fight, but it was really nothing to do with her. It was about my stuff. And I realized something is broken inside me. And she, I said, Carla, if you'll stay, she wanted to leave, of course. And, and in some ways, I think 
I wouldn't have blamed her if she did, but I said, if you'll stay, I'll be in a therapist's office on Monday morning. And I was, and I started my journey then um, to healing and, and more wholeness. So I, I did some healing work over the years. Um, I can remember sitting with my kid, Steve, watching Mr. Rogers, and he would sing that famous song, um, It's You I Like, Every Part of You. You know, not your diplomas, they're just beside you. It's you I like. And I remember weeping. Hmm. And my girls like saying, Daddy's crying, you know, whispering as if I couldn't hear them. And and one time one of my daughters even said, Why are you crying, Daddy? And and I didn't really know. Um, but I know now. It's because I wanted somebody to say those words to me. It's you I like. I think I wanted God to say those words to me. Yeah. Again, I was a pastor by that point, but I didn't. I didn't really know that God cared for me personally like that. And so finally it culminated um, at the age of 36. I was a pretty good talker, pretty good speaker. I was out doing another speaking engagement, another performance with a lot of accolade, a lot of applause. And Steve, that night uh, on the way home on the east side of Detroit, I almost I came within a gnat's eyelash of driving my automobile into a cement embankment it just overcame me that I don't want to live um, on this performance wheel any longer I was done I, I was done I didn't even know I was depressed I was done I was successful wall full of plaques married to my best friend three beautiful daughters a mile away at our home and I wanted to die and God saved my life literally saved my life it's in the books I, I write it write the story in the books and I went home and I fell on my face and I said, God, I have everything, but I, I feel like I have nothing. What is, what is wrong? What is the emptiness? And somebody had placed a copy of Brennan Manning's The Ragamuffin Gospel. You know, this broken guy struggling with alcohol his entire life, his entire ministry life. But he wrote about the love of God. And I read that book, Steve, and I wept all the way through it. I already knew all the Greek words. I knew how to preach a heck of a sermon to you and others about how God loved you. But I realized reading that book by Brennan Manning about the love of the Father, that what I didn't know, what I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't know that he loved me. Hmm. And I began my journey, an exhilarating journey to discover and to live into the fullness that Paul talks about in Ephesians 3 that comes to your heart when you begin to realize you are a beloved son or a beloved daughter. And today with all that I don't know, and you know this brother, the more we know, it seems, the more we study, the older we get, the more we think there's so much more I don't know. And, and so there's so much today, Steve, that I thought I knew, but I, I now know that I don't. I can tell you this, what I do know today is that I'm a beloved son. I'm his beloved son. I am his and he is mine and he is with me in Christ. And that is the narrative that really forms everything in my journey. My family with our ministry, it's the fact that he loves me. So there's a brief version of my, my journey. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Kevin, what do you say to people who are now where you were? where they've got a lot of Bible knowledge, they've, they've got that perfect attendance Sunday school card that they could frame and point your attention to, but they feel like they're missing that sense of, of wonder and beauty and 
grace. What do you say to them? You have to be present to the individual human being. So if I was sitting for it with a human today who said, I don't, I don't think I know that love like you're talking about it, Kev. Then what I immediately know if they say that, that they're likely um, engaged in their heart with the opposite of love, which is this emotion called shame, that feeling that they'll never be enough, that, um, you know, and shame is not guilt. True guilt is a gift from God that helps us know in our hearts we're on the wrong path, a path that won't lead to life. And so guilt helps us come back to forgiveness, which we receive through Christ and through his cross. But shame is not about what we do that we can be forgiven for. Shame is something about who we are. And there's no forgiveness for who we are. Shame makes you want to literally try to prove yourself in every moment of every day. And when you're not, it makes you feel like you want to cease to exist. So I would be cognizant if someone came to me and said, I don't know if I know that love, that probably what they're experiencing is some degree of shame. And, and honestly, I've come to believe, uh, Steve, along with Kurt Thompson, the, you know, the, the Christian psychiatrist that has written so much on this in our era, and many others, that uh, shame often starts in childhood because, and this is what Kurt Thompson says, we all come out of the womb looking for someone, looking for us with love and delight. So when you see a mom or a dad holding that newborn infant and that baby is just looking up at mom or dad and mirroring you know, them, they're taking in what mom and dad feel toward them. Am I loved? Am I not loved? Mom's eyes, dad's eyes, mom's words, dad's words, the way I'm feeling, what I'm feeling for mom and dad, what is that telling me about who I am? And mom and dad can only give that baby, that child, that two-year-old, that 10-year-old, what they're receiving. So if mom and dad have received the degree of shame and have struggled with the love of God that fills them, then they're going to give that shame away to their, their kids. So often, Steve, I will probe a person's childhood. I'm not a therapist, but I will say something along the lines of, tell me about how it was growing up. Yeah. Tell me about how it was with your mom or dad. Were you close to your dad? Were you close to your mom? How did it feel to be in your home? And often through telling story back and forth with one another, you can begin to see where shame was birthed, where shame was born. And we can start the healing journey from there. I, I would simply say to, to our listeners, we don't have to live in that shame for the rest of our lives. It is not the will of God. He loves us. Were his sons and daughters, but I didn't know it. I had Christianity all around me, bro. I had, again, I knew all these Bible verses in the original languages. I knew the pathway, but I didn't know that the words that Jesus heard at his baptism, you're my beloved son, were words that I needed to hear yeah. and that God's daughters need to hear. That, that, that is the filling for the entire journey, without which all I have is a bunch, you know, another set of religious rules that suck the very life out of us. So that I think I would, I would encourage people to be absolutely honest with themselves. I don't care if they've been teaching Sunday school or been an elder for 35 years. Where are you with knowing, not just in your head, but in your experience that I'm loved by God? Mm. And, and do you feel the freedom of knowing that love? And if not, I would try to help walk with them 
into the discovery of that love for themselves, starting with my love for them. Because it, as you know, our, we become the presence of Christ to br our brothers and sisters. So mm. if, if I really love them, they will have a firsthand of a experience of that love through which they might begin to believe that maybe there is a God who loves them too. Kevin, you said that there's some people just by based of family of origin or family systems or generational brokenness where, where shame's in the groundwater and it's not necessarily anybody's fault. They're not trying to be malicious. It's just no, the only, right. it's the only language that they know. Yeah. There are other instances where people in positions of power and authority, whether they're parents, bosses, church leaders, readily and willingly will use both shame and fear yeah. as as a club yeah. to move move people in directions that they want to go how is that different or is it all the same i think it's all the same i think if i'm not raised in a in a shame based family of origin then that means to some degree i'm raised more in an atmosphere of loving acceptance that helps me realize that god loves me and even even deuteronomy 6 the, the great shema teach your children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. So if we're raised in an environment where even imperfect parents shape us by God's love for us through them and our love for God and obedience flowing out of that love, if I hit a job at the age of 29 or 42 or whatever, where I've got an incredibly shame-based boss, then I'm more able to manage that moment because I realize my boss is broken. Yeah. My boss is full of shame, and that's what I'm receiving. So I can manage it because I'm rooted and grounded in, in the love of God in Christ in that moment. If I haven't had that background, but I've basically been raised in shame, then when I hit a coach, a teacher, a pastor, a boss, an authority figure that's just downloading all of that shame, and I got to tell you, it can be absolutely devastating. I've, I've seen so many marriages blow up, Steve. Because one of the partners, if not both, has been raised in shame and give that shame to their spouse. Shame almost killed my marriage. We were supposedly the Barbie and Ken of Taylor University, where you and I went. And yet I was so full of shame and didn't know it that I would just, and again, I'm ashamed to say this, thankful that it's not that way today, 47 years later, but, and that we're, we're truly in love with each other. But I used to be right here, man. And I did, that's what I learned in my home. That's what my dad did to my mom. And that's what I did. And it was coming out of my shame-basedness. I've seen it ruin marriages because love can't flourish in an atmosphere of shame. So same healing needs to occur if the shame occurs later in life or whether it occurs early in life. It is the arch enemy of the love of God that's mm -hmm. intended to be our security. Kurt Thompson says it's the main enemy that Satan uses to steal the life-giving, filling love of God from us. He says it's ubiquitous. It's in everything and it's everywhere. And healing is the only way we can push back that darkness. Where does that healing journey begin? Like if somebody feels like they're kind of stuck in the pit of shame, yeah. what's, what's the first rung on the ladder out of that? You know, especially if we're surrounded by religion in that shame, I, I think gut level honesty, you know, the truth, you know, the, the, the old adage, you know, Jesus words, the truth will set you free. 
think in that context, it was about Jesus as the truth will set you free. But it's a broader truthful statement that that if we just get honest and say, you know what, like Kevin, like Steve, I, I know all these verses. I've got a religious background. I've been steeped in Christianity or whatever. But inside, I'm empty. Yeah. I think that's where we have to start. As hard as that might be, we have to start and say, I'm empty. This is the way the pain is manifesting in my relationships, in my own journey, the shame that I'm feeling. And I don't want to live this way anymore. It, mm. it, we were talking earlier about hitting bottom, Steve, before we get on the podcast. I think we almost have to hit bottom with that shame and say, I don't want to live there anymore. Yeah. No, it's so good. And I'm super grateful for a series of conversations that you and I had within the last decade of, of me being in an environment where I, I grew up in a home that wasn't perfect, but by and large, the theme was you're seen, you're known, you're loved. And I was, I was encouraged to excellence, but that excellence wasn't, wasn't conditioned, like didn't condition whether or not my parents accepted me. And, you know, 20 years later, I ended up in a work environment that, yeah, started out healthy for all intents and purposes, but something got wonky in the middle of it. And there were a lot of mm -hmm. shame based messages that started to surface. And it was so hard because I would, I would go to you or I'd go to my wife, Kelly, or I'd go to other trusted friends. I'm like, I know, right. I know objectively that what they're saying isn't true, but there's still a power dynamic. That means that they get to decide whether or not I'm employed under these circumstances. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how, how do I bear up under the weight of it? And I think one of the lessons I learned the hard way is that shame and fear can be really effective short-term motivators. Yeah, uh, th there, there are coaches and, and pastors and generals and politicians and CEOs who can get great results out of using shame and fear to drive teams. But mm -hmm. the problem is that once those teams or children or whoever strangers, once they stop being afraid of you, it doesn't work anymore. Uh, yeah. and I think that when you talk about bottom, some people just get to a point of desperation and they're like, I'm so beaten down. I got nothing left to lose. Yeah. So I don't have to hear this. How does that strike you when I say it? Does that resonate at all? Or did I understand it wrong? I, I think you're exactly right. And I, I think in those moments where we finally hit bottom, what's interesting, you said you reached out to me or to your wife, Kelly, or to other trusted friends. It is difficult to heal from shame alone because the, the inner narrative, the narrative inside our head after all those years of being impacted by shame, whether at home or in culture, in society, because shame is everywhere there as well. You can't look at a magazine cover if you're, for example, a, a daughter of God and, without saying, am I supposed to be like that, look like that, right. feel like that? And for men, it's, it's in many ways the same way. So you can't heal from shame alone. We were never intended to heal alone. We need the community that is defined by the love of Christ. I, I, my, my view of church, the body of Christ these days, is that when shame is hitting us all over culture and we're beaten down by shame so that the love of Christ, the voice of, of you're my beloved daughter, you're my beloved son, becomes thinner, harder to hear. Yeah that filling begins to dissipate. We come back on a regular basis to be with the community that is defined, 1 Corinthians 13, not by knowledge, if you have all knowledge, not just by faith, if you have all faith, Paul says, but you don't have love, you have nothing. It's defined by love. So we come back in with that shame and 
the love of God that meets our vulnerability, Steve, in our shame, shame can't survive. When love hits shame, shame begins to disintegrate. So I think if nothing else, the body of Christ is intended to be a community where we bring ourselves buffeted by Satan's main tool back into that community and love begins to push back that darkness and heal us. I have a pastor friend who's now with, with, with Christ uh, just out a few years ago. He told me the more he got in touch with, with the love of God for him and for his people, he said, Kev, my preaching changed. Mm. I used to preach to tell people what to do. He said, the more the love of God began to center me, I changed so that when people came to hear me, what they heard is, this is who God says you are. Mm. There it is. Yeah. There it is in a nutshell. That's so I know. I know what to do as a, as a believer in Jesus lot, most of the time. I know the verses. What I don't know is who I am because the enemy has been in my head lying to me. So good to hear you say that. And you, you and I are both born and raised like good, good Wesleyan Methodist tradition type people. Yeah. And here I am in yeah. West Michigan, which is, you know, Dutch reform country through and through. And I heard an acquaintance once say that there was one pastoral theologian in the reform tradition that says, every time you preach, you should call people either to the font, like the baptismal font or to the table to communion. And mm -hmm. even as I heard you say that, I was sparked to that because I was like, both of those responses are responses to love. Our response is to, to faith. Like I'm, I'm, I'm invited to a moment where I am. I know that I'm beloved, and because that I'm beloved, I'm, I enter into the waters of baptism. Or I'm called to the table. The table reminds me that Christ is broken for me to meet me in my brokenness. That also means that I'm beloved. But either way, I'm beloved, and and the only appropriate response is to say yes to the invitation. That's so good. And what came to my head, uh, to my mind, was John 15 which I talk about a lot in my second book, some of the last words of Jesus in that great section of John 13 through 17. He's going to the cross the next day and he, the disciples are with him and he could have said anything, kind of the, like the last words of, of the commander in chief before he leaves and they now take the message, take the gospel, take, they take him into the world. If, if the world's going to see him, you're going to see him through them. And this is what he says. He doesn't mention Torah, doesn't mention the law, doesn't mention uh, Judaism, doesn't mention Christianity. Jesus wasn't starting Christianity. Um, he said, brothers, as the father has loved me, hmm. so I love you now. Abide in my love. Make your home in my love, as if to say, you cannot thrive, let alone survive against the powers of darkness, whose main weapon is shame. They're going to try to beat you down. And shame is powerful, but you will not only survive, you will thrive, you will win. If you take the love that tomorrow on the cross when I say it is finished, it'll be my love that crushes the powers of darkness in that moment. If you take my love out into battle with those same powers after I'm in glory, you will win 
and the kingdom of God will come to earth. Steve, he could have said anything, but instead he says, make your home in my love. Mm. Somehow, I think as the church, we, we kind of go, yeah, yeah, but what right. about those rules? Right. No, Kevin, I've got friends who understand that cognitively, right? They, they know yeah. that love is the antidote of shame and they know that community is the great disperser of, of the bondage of shame. And yet there's still some, so much like bruising or disillusionment with the, with the church. Like you and I grew up at the, at the height of the, the seeker movement. Right. And there was this whole idea of, Hey, there are a lot of people who think the church is boring. Uh, let's reinvent it for them. And, and I'm not saying that that was ill intentioned and there was, no, there was right. some fruit of that that was good and right. And absolutely. And Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, I see some friends now saying, Hey, I'm not concerned that the church church is boring. My concern is that certain expressions of the church are downright dangerous mm -hmm. because they have caused deep emotional harm or spiritual trauma, either to me or the people that I love. So there's, there's a lot of discussion these days about people who are deconstructing their faith and they're not, they're not young or immature believers. Right. A lot, mm -hmm. a lot of these people could quote chapter and verse better than, better than maybe you or I could. Mm -hmm. What what do you say to people who are like, I still love the Lord. I still believe in the scriptures. I know that I need community. I can't or won't darken the doors of a house of worship in this season of my life. Well, <laughs> I mean, again, individual situations. I wish I could meet one cup of coffee at a time with each individual that we're kind of alluding to in our heads because each situation is a little bit different. But I would say to those human beings, first of all, now you know this, you know this, you will not find a perfect community. Right. You're going to have a community that is full of human beings who tend towards sin and we tend to hurt each other. And so just know that. And most of them will get, yeah, 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 I know that. Um, but what you can find is a community. If you, if you look and if you, if you ask the Lord who is love, God is love. The Christ who said, abide in my love. If you say, Father, through your son, Christ and the power of the spirit, show me. I know I cannot live without community we were created in the image of a father son spirit triunity that created us in his image and he didn't create us alone he created us male and female together we've we've been community from the beginning and so to help those folks know there is no perfect community but you've got to have community you can find an imperfect community that is centered on the love of jesus and if i'm living near them i would say let me help you let yeah. me help you find one. And honestly, in the worst case scenarios, I'd say, do you have any friends that feel the same about the love of God in Christ, that it's central and you just can't find a place within driving distance? Start hanging out in your living room, man. Yeah, that's good. You don't have to start a church. Be it. Be that. Be that community in your living room and see what God does from there. That's so good. That's really good. Kevin, before we let you go, tell us a little bit about Rooted and the work that you're doing there and how people can find out more about it. Well, um, I mean, you, you, you know, this is true. It's one of the reasons we found each other over the years that pastors are very lonely 
um, human beings, they have nowhere to really call safe space. Mm -hmm. Finding that this is a new concept for folks that, wait a minute, pastors are struggling. Is it really true that 40 and in some demographics, 50% of pastors today are questioning their call yeah. via several different polls, reputable polls. Yeah. I'm saying, yeah, it's true. A pastor, especially a lead pastor, can't really share completely with their uh, elders, lead team, because they have authority over them. They can hire them. They can fire them. They can, one person that's kind of gone off the rails can make life miserable for a pastor. So he can't share completely there. Can't share completely with his staff or her staff because they're their boss. Can't share completely with the community of faith. You can't make the community your group therapy through your preaching or whatever. They have a certain, Freud called it transference, a certain view of you in, in, the, in the pastorate that you can't do anything about. It's just there. So you have to be careful with that relationship. So where does a pastor or where does his or her spouse share? and find complete safety and acceptance, an ability to be their true selves. That's what we provide um, at Rooted Ministries. We will often say uh, to someone who has found their way to us, and we, we get over a cup of coffee or we get maybe on a Zoom, we'll say, look, take this in the right way. We don't need you. Hmm. No, no, no. We need you as a brother or sister, come on. But I want you to hear that and feel it. We're here for you because we know everybody in your world needs you. We don't ever want you to come into a phone call with us or me and then get off and say, gosh, I didn't ask Kevin how he was doing because this is not about that. Right. So we create safe space and then we journey with that pastor and his or her spouse and family and create community for them in larger groups around the country via retreats, couples retreat, pastors retreats, little communities around the country led by pastors that are on this journey to create safety for these pastors to find again, or maybe find like I did at the age of 36, their home in the love of God in Christ for the first time or to come home for the first time in a long time. What I'm finding, Steve, is that like I wasn't I wasn't a one-off in my journey. Many pastors know how to preach the love of God, but in terms of their experience, they don't know him deep in their heart. They don't know where he is. He's a commodity that they talk about, but they struggle to be intimate. There's a word, to be intimate with him. I remember... Um, one pastor I was talking to in a community that was experiencing a lot of turmoil. And one day he was just so broken and so wounded. And I said to him, my brother, where is Jesus for you in all of this? Mm -hmm. And he paused and he said, well, I think what Jesus is saying to me is X and Y and Z. And I said, I don't mean to be coy, my friend, but I didn't ask you what Jesus was saying to you. Mm -hmm. I asked you, where is he? for you. And I, I'll never forget this, Steve. It brings a tear to my eye right now. He looked at the, his desk and paused. And then he looked up at me and he said, honestly, Kev, I don't know. 
It just breaks my heart. And who is he going to tell that to? I know there were many moments in my 35 years in three communities. I didn't know who to talk to. And when I did talk to some of those leaders that I thought were safe out of their own baggage, they ended up hurting me and my family deeply. Yeah. Um, so out of having no one for so many years, and most of our team has struggled to have someone, we now create space for others. To use Mother Teresa's word, Steve, we, we try to become the somebody for the pastoral community when they don't think they have anybody. Okay. So good. Last question. Remind people the names of your books and where they can find them. The first book is called Choose and Choose Again, The Brave Act of Returning to God's Love. I wrote with Tyndale and Nat Press, and they can find that book. That's that's about the love of God and about finding your way home there, filled with stories from Detroit, a really tough neighborhood that will be very encouraging. You can find that book um, on Amazon. You can find it at Christian Book Distributors. If they wanted to get in touch with me, I'll sign some copies and send them. I, I will. And then the second book is called Free rescued from shame-based religion, released into the life-giving love of Jesus, which is kind of a sequel. Um, how do we live into this love that we now realize we must have? And you can find that book in all the same places. It's amazing. Kevin, thank you so much for just the encouragement, the the wisdom, the insight that you've offered us today. I'm so grateful for our friendship and for the journey that God has you on. Me too, Steve. Love you so much, man. And so good to be with you and your listeners. Thank you so much. God bless. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.